Uh, You can open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at a few different passages this morning. Uh, The title of my sermon today is Shame, Salvation, and Suffering. Uh, If you know me, I don't tend to be very good at three-point sermons. I also don't tend to be good at like that preacher thing where every word starts with the same letter. But I did it today, so I'm patting myself on the back because I got a three-point sermon and all the words start with the same letter. It actually works. I don't think I'm stretching here to make this. I'm not trying to be cute. Psalm chapter 25, uh, verses 1 through 10, we have this on the screen. And so let's read this together. You stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read this passage together. Come back to it. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Shame, salvation, and suffering. Uh, We start with shame. This is a word that jumps out to me in this passage. It's used three times in our passage this morning, kind of towards the top, although if you read the rest of the psalm, you'll find it showing up uh, later as well. But I think this word shame stands out to me, not just because of its frequency, passage, but because there's just something about that word that catches our attention. Uh, There was a film that came out uh, last year, uh, 2011, and the title of it was simply Shame. Now, I I didn't see this film. Some of you may have. Um, But I want to say that there's something about that word, the, the Whoever put this movie poster together, they didn't have to do anything else. They show you a picture of kind of a, 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 an unmade bed and the word shame. And that's enough. It grabs your attention, right? You're, you're not, you won't be surprised to know that this is a film about a, a sex addict and his life and struggle and experience. Bow this word that just, mm, like, mm, feel it. I don't think I have to convince you of this. There's something about the human experience that connects with this word. The first time that the Hebrew word is used, the Hebrew word that we find in our passage this morning for shame, the first time that it's used is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the first time that the word shame in this Hebrew version of it shows up in, in, the, in the Old Testament, and it's used in a positive way. It comes at the end of this creation narrative of all God has done, God creating the universe out of nothing, God pulling together the world, God inhabiting the world, 
Every day, by creating and saying it is good, creating it is good, creating it is good, creating humanity and saying it is very good. The man and his wife were naked, and they knew no shame. They were not ashamed. Something positive about this, something good about this. There's something, I would say, in you and in me that has this memory of God's intention that we live our lives without shame. There's something about uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be created in the image of God. We are meant to be people without shame. Shame is not part of the original human experience. It's not what we are made for. It's hard for us to even imagine that, of course, because our lives are so defined by shame. In fact, just a chapter later in Genesis, we find shame re-entering the picture. Now, it's not used. The word is not used here, but you can see what the author is doing and showing us how shame now enters the picture. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. After humanity rebels, sins against God, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Two times in this passage, we see this language of hiding. One time we see man and woman covering their nakedness. A result of our rebellion, of our sin, is that shame enters our experience. And it's not this, this, this abstract thing. There's very tangible results. We hide. We hide from God. We hide from each other. And there's even a sense of hiding from ourselves, of sort of pushing down these things, trying to forget certain Things, reinventing ourselves in certain ways. Hiding these very destructive ways just becomes a natural result of shame. What, what, what is it? What is shame? How do we define it? It's kind of one of those emotional things we have a visceral reaction to. In the Bible, we see that, that shame is very often kind of an emotion or an experience that results from actions from uh, 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 um, actions that lead to, lead to feelings like embarrassment, humiliation, uh, sense of failure. So there's this, there's this result. You do something, and as a result of it, you feel embarrassed. You feel humiliated. You feel uh, ashamed. When I was a, uh, a, a, a kid... Young, I don't remember how old. My family was visiting uh, another family, some friends, and um, and they had some toys. Their their daughters were all kind of grown up, but they kept some toys, and they had like a you know big old bag of Matchbox cars. Anybody? And they had in there they had like a little Matchbox helicopter. 
which I thought was awesome. I never had one of those. So I was playing with it and, and not, not carefully. I broke one of the uh, propellers, one of the rotors on the helicopter. And in my young, depraved state, I uh, hit it. I can't even remember where. I hit it somewhere in these people's living room and act like it never happened. And you know, the thing is, at, to this day, I remember that. And more than the event itself, what I remember is laying in my little bed at night. Ashamed. And, and, and this is probably more evidence just of my function than anything else, but I couldn't shake it. And time passed, and I don't know how much time passed. These memories get fuzzy, but I remember one night laying in bed and finally I can't take it anymore. And getting out of bed and finding one of my parents, I can't remember which one, and making my confession to them. <laughs> I had done this thing. And, I, you know, I, I just imagined them laughing after I went back to bed. Called me and sent me on my way. And I slept like a baby. The shame had been taken away. This is one of the ways that shame works, right? We do something, and we feel something. Uh, but in the scriptures, we, we find that shame doesn't end there. It's more than just... A, a, a response to our action, shame actually becomes part of our ident- identities. So we don't just feel ashamed, we are shameful people. We see this Adam and Eve, right? I mean, they start off, they start off naked with no shame, and then they become people who can't be naked any longer without shame. They're not choosing to sow fig leaves because that's like a fun thing to do. It's just a response to what they think their identity is now. Shame-bearing people. And so when we hear the psalmist in verse 7 of our psalm today pray to God, he says, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. We understand that. We memories with us, those things that we can put our finger on. The things that we maybe try to forget, but then sometimes will kind of come back to us. And the psalmist says, no, don't, don't, don't remember that. But we do. We remember. And there's a sense that we are possessed by our past, by this shame. One of the threads that we find weaved through the scriptures is how the accuser, the enemy of God, one who is referred to as Satan in one of the passages we'll look at in a minute. How this one uses shame to shift our identity. He, he does this, we see, with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? This is a question of God's goodness, which is then a question, of course, of their identity. Are you really beloved by God? Are you treasured by God? Or? And so we see throughout the scriptures, the accuser used shame to shift humanity's identity from those who are beloved to those who have been abandoned by God. 
You see the results and the fruits of this over and over again. People who live not out of a deep sense of their belovedness, but out of their sense of abandonment by God. And, and, and there's a shame that comes along with feeling abandoned. It's not always rational, but it's there, it's present. Don's husband, Michael, did you send it? This movie, Father's Day, he posted this trailer. Don's the person, so I assume that you would have known. He posted this trailer to a film, I think it must be coming out soon, called Father's Day, question mark. And it it seems to be, I I just know this from the trailer, it seems to be a movie about a, a young adult woman who grew up in a home without a father. And, and, and the crisis of the film is her desire to find her dad, to meet him. And the tension is, is those around her who think this is a bad idea. And so someone asks her, why does she want to do this? Why does she want to re- re- risk rejection to meet this person? And this is what she says in the trailer. She says, because I need to know why. I need to know what it is about me that makes people leave. Do you hear what she does there? The, the abandonment by her father is her fault. What is it about me that causes people to leave? I've been a pastor long enough to have conversations with people who are married, who are thinking of no longer being married, of separating, of divorcing, and the conversation very quickly is about the kids, the children. Because there is this sort of just knowledge that as absurd as it might be that the kids would be the fault of this divorce, the parents know. The parents know that their son, their daughter, their children are going to ask that question. What did I do? What could have I done differently to keep mom and dad together? Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. So as, as, as um, nonsensical as this is, the sense of being abandoned leads to this deep, deep sense of shame. And our accuser capitalizes on this. Are you really beloved by God? Are you really treasured by God? been having conversations with different ones of you uh, this week about Lent. Uh, we, we celebrated, uh, recognized Ash Wednesday service. Um, and some of you are already having a sense that this is going to be a very challenging 40 days. Uh, that this is not just a kind of religious practice, but as we confront our sin, as we ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal our sinfulness, our addiction, our dysfunction, so that we can repent and turn from these and be healed, that this is going to be painful. For some of us, when we think about uh, addressing our sin, recognizing our sin, confronting our sin, we very quickly are taken to our shameful identities. It's not just a matter of making a quick confession and moving on. The idea of hopelessly of honest with ourselves, asking God, show me what is hindering me from completely following you. This is a question that takes us right to the root of who we have come to believe we are. 
And so we pull back. We step back. Because it's just too painful. Too painful to acknowledge, to look at who we have come to believe we are. Shame-bearing people. So instead we choose uh, willful ignorance. It's because it's easier. Or, or we choose instead to put up with a, a life that's good enough. Choosing to look away from these places in our life where sin has a hold. Because it's just too hard. It just goes too deep. And so I'll put up with a good enough life. Which unfortunately is not what Jesus has in mind for us. A good enough life. I have come to give you life and give you good enough life. Is that what Jesus says? I've come to help you get by. I've come to help you just make it through. And so we come to salvation. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. And we'll come back to our psalm here in just a minute. We have that passage, Renee. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. This will be a familiar passage to some of you. Here, Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. I mean, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, a first scan of this passage, it appears that Jesus is just kind of following the same pattern that you and I follow. The accuser comes to Jesus as the accuser comes to us, attempting the very same tactics on Jesus as he has on us. With Adam and Eve, the question is, did God really say What's the question with Jesus? Well, we don't see it in this passage. Mark is kind of interested in the, the shorter version of the story. But we see in the other Gospels, three times the accuser comes to Jesus and begins his questioning this way. If you are the Son of God. Did God really say, is God really good? Are you really beloved by God? Are you the Son of God? The Son of God. If you are the Son of God. It's the same tactic. Are you really God's beloved or has God abandoned you? Jesus, you're in the wilderness. You're hungry. Apparently there's wild animals kicking around. Who are you, Jesus? Beloved or abandoned? Now, we need to understand what Mark is doing in this scene because it ends up that it's not it's the same old pattern that you and I experience in our life. See, the accuser is about to find that something has changed dramatically. Two things for you to notice in this passage. First is the urgency of it. Mark does this throughout his gospel, but he shows this urgency. These, these words, just as Jesus was coming out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open 
At once, the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. Jesus goes on to say, the time has come. Repent. This is an urgent scene. There's momentum here. There's direction here. But it's also kind of an an epic scene. Look where this plays out. This is in the wilderness. When was the last time you spent 40 days in the wilderness? This is an epic, kind of dangerous scene. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. There's wild animals around. He's attended to by angels. His cousin is put in prison. Do you see what Mark is doing here? This is not just kind of happenstance. The accuser didn't just come to Jesus randomly. The the scene has shifted. Jesus is not passively waiting for the accuser to come to him. Jesus is going at the accuser. This is a, a radically different experience than you and I have had. Jesus is not passive. He is on the move. He is confronting the one whose accusations have bound us in shame. And because Jesus doesn't succumb for even a moment to the accuser's lies, there is no way for shame to attach itself to Christ. He is led into the wilderness with the Father's words ringing in his ears, You are my son. Love with you I am well pleased. And he emerges from the wilderness with the same Words ringing in his ears. No shame. No sense of abandonment, despite all that he just went through. Who he is, whose he is, what his mission is. And Mark says he goes on to proclaim the good news of God. Having stood down the accuser, he announces freedom and salvation for us. And he will pursue this announcement all the way to the cross. He finally states, it is finished. He emerges from the wilderness victorious, having confronted, having addressed, having sought out the accuser who has had him bound up in shame. He defeats him. He humiliates him there. No shame can attach him. He takes this message of salvation all the way to the cross. Where everything that is us up in shame, every bit of deception, every lie, every accusation is put to death finally. Jesus takes it, absorbs it, and then cries out, it's done, it's finished. Puts it to death and rises victorious over it. You and I, we're used to kind of being passive and receiving and absorbing accusations. Jesus goes right at the accuser for us for our salvation, proving, demonstrating that our identities are not abandoned people, but beloved children. You hear that? Ah, but do we believe it? We are saved from shame. So listen to how David prays in this psalm. Verse 3, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Remember, Lord, verses 6 and 7, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. 
Do not remember the sins of my youth, my rebellious ways. No, according to your love, remember me. In Jesus, God has torn open the heavens. Torn open the heavens and proclaimed to the world, you are my son whom I love. You are my daughter whom I love. The good news is that Jesus has defeated the source of our shame. And so because of this, there is no longer any reason to hide. There is no reason any longer to hide from our God, to hide from each other, to hide from ourselves. Satan's accusations carry no power. So we hear things like, all, all, all you will ever be, the source of your identity, all you will ever be is a liar and a thief. That addiction proves that you will never be a free person. People would be shocked if they ever found out how much of a hypocrite you are. You are ugly and will never be loved and accepted. You have to act tough and strong as you can so that people can't see the scared child you will always, always be. These accusations no longer have any power. To these accusations, you and I reply, no, I am not defined by my past. I am not bound by my sin. Shame has no power over me. My hope is in God, my Savior. My Lord remembers me out of his great mercy. I am known according not to my sin, not to my past, not to my shame. I am known by what? The love of God. Is this good news? Let me give you, let me end with some more paradoxical good news. Shame, salvation, suffering. Or maybe more specifically, the school of suffering. This is where I want to end today. You see, there's this other theme in our psalm. It's a theme of instruction, of teaching. Let me just read to you a few of the phrases. David writes, show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. God instructs sinners in his ways. God guides the humble in what is right. God teaches us his way. You see the theme? There's some teaching here, some schooling here, some instruction here. Would you agree? What's going on? Jesus doesn't just reclaim our identities on the surface. He transforms our lives at their deepest places. I I need you to understand that, that because of the cross, it's not just God has taken one label off of you, abandoned, and put a new label on you, beloved. God's not interested in just the surface. God wants to change you at the core of who you are. So he sends us to the school of suffering. That doesn't sound like good news, right? We know the heart of God. We know that God does not desire our suffering. We know that God does not choose our suffering. But what we 
also know is that God will use the suffering we have experienced. In Jesus, suffering is being redeemed. Are we surprised that God would use our suffering when we look at Jesus? I mean, I, I think about this sometimes. Jesus is about to start his ministry. He, he, he meets his cousin John, who has this amazing baptism ministry going on on the Jordan River, right? I mean, this thing is blowing up. Everybody is showing up. The sinners, the religious, the soldiers, everybody's there. And then Jesus uh, is baptized. And, and, and I don't know what happened when you were baptized, but when Jesus is baptized... The heavens are torn open. Did that happen for you? I was baptized in somebody's swimming pool in Southern California. It did not happen for me. We had like some iced tea afterwards or something. I don't know. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are torn open. The voice of God the Father speaks, you are my son. And then what? The Holy Spirit of God descends on Jesus. Spiritual mountaintop, would you agree? Some of us would kill for that, right? And immediately, Jesus is led into the wilderness. Immediately, Jesus is led to, to, to confront his accuser. Immediately, Jesus finds himself surrounded with wild animals, hungry, thirsty, tired, suffering. All the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. Where on the cross, Jesus takes on all the suffering of the world onto his own suffering body. And it's there that God accomplishes victory. It's there that God accomplishes through the Son of God's suffering and death. So you see why God might want to school us in the school of suffering? In the pattern of Jesus? This is what Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. When was the last time you prayed that? Huh? I want to know Jesus so much, I want to participate in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Paul understood the school of suffering. Paul understood that suffering wasn't from God's hand, but that God in Jesus would redeem every suffering experience. That God would enact God's purpose, that God would work mysteriously and powerfully in every experience. What the enemy intended for our destruction, God will use for our redemption. Do you hear that? The suffering in your life right now that the accuser means for your destruction, God wants to use for your redemption. What the world meant to undermine us, God will use to transform us. The circumstances that should have taken you out will, use, will be used by God to bring you out. I know this is not the kind of sermon where people get real excited because we're talking about suffering. But I, I want you to hear that what God has for us is not, not a surface change. God's going to change us to the core of who we are. And the way that's going to happen many, many times is going to be through very painful, difficult experiences. Not all the times, 
But if you look back on, on your life, this would be my guess today. If we spent time, we went around and asking, when were the points where God really transformed my life? How many of those times when you were just like super, super comfortable? When everything was just great? When you were happy, content, not a care in the world? Are those the time when your life has been radically changed? Or has it been when you're desperate? When the bottom is falling out? When there seems to be nobody you can turn to? This, in the pattern of Jesus, seems to be when God works most powerfully in our lives. So I want to invite you to go to school this Lent. I want you, I want to invite you to come to the school of suffering this Lent. Uh, That doesn't mean that you need to go find things to suffer for. Let's be clear about that, right? We're all crystal clear on that. I know you well enough. I know our church well enough to know there's plenty of suffering already at play. There's plenty of pain. There's plenty of confusion. There's plenty of doubt. There's plenty of relational hardship. The invitation is maybe to show up to that in a new way, this Lent. To show up to the pain in your life as an opportunity for God to change your life. To not turn away from it, to not walk away from it. And see, we can only do this when shame no longer has power over us. See, when shame still has power over us, we can't honestly look at our lives. We can't honestly show up painful things in our lives, the sin in our lives, the rebellion in our lives, the dysfunction in our lives. When shame still has control over us, power over us, we push away from that. We look away from that. We back up from that. It's too much. But when we understand that our identity is God's beloved children, that shame no longer has any claim over us, that we don't have to hide from ourselves, from each other, or from God, then we can honestly and completely show up to the work that God wants to do in our lives, however God wants to do it in our lives. You see? Worship team can can come on back up. So if you go to this school, um, the accuser is going to seek to distract you. Some of you have already shared that with me this week, that you have already experienced this. Here's what I want you to hear. When you show up to the school of suffering, asking that, that, that whatever the circumstances are in your life, that God uses those to, 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 to redeem your life, to rescue your life, to change your life. And when then you begin to hear in your ear, how can you even ask that? How can you even expect that? You're a sinner. Can I tell you what? Can I tell you something to say? You say, absolutely. It's the only way I could get into this school. Yeah? The only way that I could show up to the school of suffering, the only way I could show up to what God wants to do in my life is to fully admit, I'm messed up. I'm broken up. I'm a sinner. That has no power over me any longer because that's not my identity. There's no shame that holds me in that any longer. You have things in your life that used to bring you shame, church. And maybe some of you still do have things in your life that bring you shame. But because of Jesus' victory, these things no longer define you. These are not your identity. 
And some of you, that's going to be enough today. This idea of the school of suffering, you're like, I can't even go there because I'm still so bound up in shame. You don't need to be bound up anymore. Some of you right now, you have, the, you have the script running through your mind. You have the images running through your mind. You have the memories, the pictures running through your mind. For some of you, it's something that happened 10 years ago. For some of you, it was last night. You don't need to be defined by that any longer. Do you hear me? I don't think you believe me. But it's true that in Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished, you are not defined any longer by your shame. I don't care what memory is coming to your mind right now. You're not defined by it. I I don't care what you did. I don't care when you did it. You're not defined by it. I don't care what somebody else did to you. You're not defined by it. Say amen if you're with me. It's not who you are. That's not the sum total of your existence, of your identity. You are not an abandoned person. Your identity is one created in the image of God, beloved by God. Has exposed the emptiness and the powerlessness of everything that ever sought to keep you in bondage, bound up in sin. Paul says that's been exposed. It's bankrupt. There's no power in that. This has humiliated that on the cross. So, so that's it for some of you. That's it. That's it. That's it. Just, this, just shame. Just letting go of shame. That's it for you today. That's enough. You got to bring that to somebody this week. Bring it to somebody in your community group. Bring it to one of our prayer folks. Bring it to me. Bring it to somebody. Say, this thing, I'm bringing it to light. I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm hearing that I don't have to hide anymore. And so don't. Don't hide anymore. Start today. Start this week. Show somebody, tell somebody, bring somebody into your story. Demonstrate the powerlessness to the accuser of shame. Does that make sense? Some of us, though, need to show up to the school of suffering this week. Maybe some of you started off saying, I'm going I'm to do this corporate fast on Fridays during Lent, and you did it, and it, it, it just sucked for you on Friday. Because it did for me, I'm going to be honest with you. It, was, it did not go well for me on Friday. I was, I was a little bit ornery. I was, I was trying to write this sermon, and it, it was not, Amelia, it was not coming. And then when I finally got to eat, I thought, oh, now I'm going to be able to focus. And I just felt like drowsy the rest of the day. That didn't feel spiritual at all. I kind of invite you to keep showing up over the next 40 days. To keep placing yourself in positions of weakness, vulnerability to what God wants to do in your life. To not turn away from the hard things, the painful things, the suffering things, but instead turn towards those and ask God, what do you want to do in me through this? How do you want to change me through this? How do you want to rescue me through this? How do you want to mature me through this? How do you want to call me through this? It may be painful. But healing often is painful. Our teacher, our guide, our instructor, according to the psalm, is trustworthy. He's merciful. 
He's our Savior. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's upright. He's faithful. He's good. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him. With everything in your life, you can trust him. You don't have to hide any longer. You don't have to be burdened under shame any longer. You can trust him. Yeah? And so, Lord, we ask that you uh, do this work in us. We ask that you uh, rescue us and liberate us from our shame. We ask that you be powerful for us today. God, there are those of us who have been so certain shameful elements of our life so long that we literally cannot imagine living without it. Give us an imagination that can imagine what a free life would be. Most of us, we're so used to experiencing any kind of pain, any kind of suffering as, as if something has, has gone wrong, as if we have done something wrong, as if you are not pleased with us somehow, God, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you being powerful in our lives to help us to be present to every hard situation. We thank you that Jesus, though, God, that you have you've demonstrated eternally there's no power in shame. There's no power. There's no power in the accuser's lies. As these things have been exposed as empty, as powerlessless, as bankrupt. We thank you too that you, you stepped into the painfulness and the suffering of our world and took it on to yourself. And so can now use the painful things in our lives the things even that we have inflicted onto ourselves, you can use those for our redemption and your glory. So I pray for your church today that you would do a mighty, a powerful work in us, God. God, help us to be people who can, who can keep our chins up, who can look you squarely in the eye, knowing how loved we are, how accepted we are. Help us to be people who can do the same with each other, who do not have to hide from one another, who do not have to to keep part of ourselves hidden away. God, do a powerful, powerful work in us today. And do it however you need to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our prayer team is available. Uh, They made it very clear to me that they would love to pray for people today. Um, if there's any anything in you that the Holy Spirit is working on, nudging you, prompting you, ask them to pray for you, please. Um, this is not the sort of thing, the sort of sermon where you're meant to leave and say, okay, I'm going to try really hard now this week. Do, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? This is not the kind of thing where you need to go, okay, 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 this time I'm going to get it right. This time I'm going to do it. This time I'm going to leave the shame behind. We're meant to do this together. So stick around. Please continue to worship. Pray for one another. Uh, ask for prayer. And then we'll start our, our meeting in a few minutes. Uh, this is what I want us to do. This is, this is going to be our benediction today. Um, I'm going to read a, a portion of the psalm that comes towards the end. And I want you to repeat it after me. I want you to speak these words, pray these words over each other. Um, We need to pray for each other during Lent. Amen? Somebody told me this morning that every uh, every night this week, they just had horrible, horrible 
dreams where they just felt completely afflicted and attacked. Waking up early in the morning just feeling devastated. We need to pray for each other during this season. Amen? Because God is at work, but sometimes it's going to be painful and we're going to want to turn away. Um, so I want you to grab somebody's hand next to you, please. Find somebody that, we, that you can hold their hand. This is a reminder that we're away from each other during this time. We turn towards each other. That there's nothing to hide. There's no shame that keeps us from turning towards each other. And I want you to repeat this after me. Pray this over each other. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me. Because is in you. And so, God, we ask that you send us out now as your rescued people. Rescued from shame. Free to bring everything in our life before you without fear. Asking that you change us, heal us, transform us for the good of the world. So give us the courage we need just today and then tomorrow and then the next day to follow you so closely as you do this work in our lives. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for our salvation. May it be our eternal, steadfast, unshakable hope this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.